Hello. Welcome to the first episode of Podcasting with Callum Baird in the year of our Lord, 2021. How's it going? Happy New Year. Uh, This is the first Monday of the year I'm recording this on. And I hope this podcast finds you and finds you well. Um... Yeah, I guess welcome to 2021, folks. Um, I've not really got many plans for the new year, if I'm honest. It's hard to make plans, isn't it? Um, I mean, last year was dominated by the virus, and the year ahead will probably be dominated by the vaccine for the virus. So... um, it's kind of hard to make plans with that. I mean, the the, vi- the vaccine is obviously a, a big step forward. But it's a slow step. Um, and that means there's a lot of room for trepidation. That's a good word, isn't it, for a Monday morning? Trepidation. Um... And it's hard to make plans and to, th- and to think about where you could be. And in a, in a British context as well... Um, it's hard to have any plans because of because of Brexit. Um, before all of this, before Brexit as well, if you needed a break or you wanted a holiday, you could do that relatively. You would go to Europe basically in Britain, and you could do that with relative ease. Uh, you could book a plane to Paris just as easily as you could book a train to Paris or you could book a flight to Poland just as easily as you could book a flight to Spain and you could do that just as easily as you could book a seat on a train from Edinburgh to Glasgow and vice versa. Uh, But now, not so much. And as a musician, uh, Brexit has left us um, well, people say it in uncertainty, but it's left us in no uncertain terms that um, our, the British government doesn't want musicians, doesn't value musicians enough to even put them on the table. It seems that we weren't even negotiated on, that we weren't even discussed in negotiations. It was all seems to be about fisheries and whose water is what water. And, um, music's been left off the agenda um, and f- you know for instance if I want to tour Europe I need to have a carne and numerous other bits of paperwork and before my arse is even on a seat on a plane to Europe I have to have spent at least 300 quid um, and I on a good day at a, good, at a big festival that I would play at in, in Europe like a festival that would get 20,000 folk over a weekend I'd get I'd get about I'd get about 300 euros for the gigs I did um um but that you know I can't I can't pay 300 quid before I go there before I go to Europe um because not every gig I play is a festival that gets 20,000 people over a weekend 
Um, so that's a massive. They've turned something that was already a bit of a loss maker into just a total no, no point. And they've taken the classic Tory um, philosophy of if it doesn't make money, then it's not worth it. And if I was to say to a member of the Tory government, well, you've taken something that was already a loss maker and made it an impossibility, they'd say, well, it was a loss maker, so it's not worth, not worth it. If it's not turning a profit, it's not, it's not worth it. Um, so yeah, there's, um, if you're hoping to, if you're listening to this and you're hoping for some information on what 2021 has in store for for myself as a musician um live performances not even a dot on the horizon touring in europe stone dead and there's possibility of some new tunes actually i've been quite and write a lot i've been quite and write a lot i've been writing quite a lot jesus first monday of the year folks i have been writing quite a lot writing quite a lot uh, writing quite a lot of lyrics lately um, and I just need to put them into song I cannot believe I just said quiting right a lot Jesus man let's just have a moment's silence for my tongue um, so and, and I have a song that's near enough ready to go I've sent it to a producer friend of mine um, to do the final bits and pieces of work required to get the song to a stage where you would listen to it and it would feel like a nice wholesome meal. Now I don't know if you, you know, you might not necessarily be a meat eater. So allow me to try and expand this metaphor. You have a meal, if you're a meat eater, and you've got your chicken, let's say, your veg, and a couple of tatties. And you want to enjoy the whole meal, you want to, you compliment the chicken, chicken's very nice, potatoes, very nice, well cooked, vegetables, very nice, very well cooked. I want my song to be like that, I don't want you just to say, I like the guitar, but the vocals, crap, or vice versa, or I like the lyrics, but don't really like the chord progression, doesn't really work. So I'm trying, I've sent it on to a friend and uh, or a fellow professional and um, have asked them to soup it up a bit and yeah, we'll wait and see what it is. The artwork's finalised. Um, if you want to find out all about the song, um, you can become a supporter of my work on my Ampled page for less than £3 a month and you can find out exactly what's going on in the song what it's called um, and shortly I'll be posting the artwork on there for for my supporters who will be the first to find out about the song and that's really all I can say for my music in the, in the coming days months and weeks in this year So anyway, I hope that you are settling into the new year reasonably well and that you're able to 
you've got a bit of optimism, whatever it might be. And at the weekend past there, there was quite a lot of snow uh, in Scotland, central Scotland. Mostly it seemed to be Edinburgh that got the snow, east coast of Scotland. And um, there was lots of pictures being posted on Facebook by photographers and... um, yeah, people out and about, Facebook, Instagram, all that sort of stuff. People out and about taking pictures of Edinburgh in the snow and the quiet, still um, streets of Edinburgh covered in snow. And it made me realise um, I haven't been in Edinburgh for months. Um, and I, I have a strange relationship with Edinburgh. Um, it's the sort of place where I go and I enjoy it very, very much. Um, but if I'm there for too long, it starts to get on my nerves. Um, th- there's not an off switch for Edinburgh. The, the off switch has been ripped off the switchboard many, many years ago. And it just feels constant. F- um, and there's not a place for a break when you're in Edinburgh for too long and so eventually what you were enjoying you start to like not enjoy because you're experiencing it too much but when I go I I really get I really buy into the atmosphere and the culture particularly during the Edinburgh Festival and I really enjoy it and seeing these pictures and seeing how peaceful Edinburgh looked and how quiet and still it was made me really want to be there and be in the atmosphere and the culture I just talked about and um, that then got me thinking about a poem by Robert Burns called An Address to Edinburgh which I'm going to read to you just now and I hope I'm allowed to do this I hope this isn't plagiarism. Uh, I guess we'll find out if Robert Burns' estate gets in touch with me or if Spotify take this podcast down, which I hope won't happen. So I'm going to do, I'm going to read to you, I've got an anthology of Burns' poems and songs, which was published by Fontana Books in 1986. Made and printed in Great Britain by William Collins Sons and Co. Limited, Glasgow. 1986. Um, I'm just reading the conditions of sale. Doesn't say anything about podcasts, which is, you know, what you'd expect from a book that was published in 1986, I guess. So I, I'm taking that as I'm okay to read this on my podcast. But it's an anthology of Burns' poems and his songs. And it's in Scots, and Scots is a language that isn't really spoken very much anymore. Having said that, actually, I just used the Scots word there, and it's that common in my language that I didn't even notice it. I just said, isn't which is a very Scottish word, which means is not, isn't, is not is shortened to isn't, which in Scots is shortened to isn't isn't that isn't there that isn't happening um so if you're not from scotland and i suspect even if you are there'll be some words here that you don't really know 
Um, and I've read this a couple of times and I'm going to say words wrong. That's just going to happen. And um, so I, it's quite long. It's about three pages. So eight verses, but they go over a page and about two pages maybe. Edina, Scotia's darling seat, all hail thy palaces and towers, where once beneath a monarch's feet sat legislation's sovereign powers. From marking wildly scattered flowers, as on the banks of air I strayed, and singing, lone, the lingering hours, I shelter in thy honoured shade. Here wealth still swells the golden tide, as busy trade his labours plies. Their architecture's noble pride bids elegance and splendours rise. Here justice from her native skies high wields her balance and her rod. Their learning with eagle eyes seeks science in her coy abode. Thy sons, Edina, social, kind, with open arms a stranger hail, their views enlarged, their liberal mind. Above the narrow rural vale, attentive still to sorrow's wail, on modest merit's silent claim, and never may their sources fail, and never envy blot their name. Thy daughters bright, thy walks adorn, gay as the gilded summer sky, sweet as the dewy milk-white thorn, dear as a raptured thrill of joy, fair burnet sky strikes the adorning eye, Heaven beauties on my fancy shine. I see the sire of love on high and own his work indeed divine. There, watching high the least alarms, thy rough, rude fortress gleams afar, like some bold veteran grey in arms, and marked with a many with many a seamy scar, the ponderous wall and massy bar, grim rising o'er the rugged rock, have oft withstood a sailing war, and oft repelled the invader's shock. With awestruck thought and pitying tears, I view that noble stately dome, where Scotia's kings of other years, famed heroes had their royal home. Alas, how changed the times to come, the royal name low in the dust, their hapless race wild wandering roam, Though rigid law cries out loud, out loud, twas just. Wild beats my heart to trace your steps, whose ancestors in days of yore, through hostile ranks and ruined gaps, old Scotia's bloody lion bore. Even I, who sing in rustic lore, haply my sires have left their shed, and fact grim danger's loudest roar, bold following where your fathers led. Edina, Scotia's darling seat, all hail thy palaces and towers, where once beneath a monarch's feet sat legislation's sovereign powers. From marking wildly scattered flowers as the banks of air as on the banks of air I strayed, and singing lone the lingering hours I shelter in thy honoured shade. That was an address to Edinburgh by Robert Burns. Hope you enjoyed it. I hope it made you think of Edinburgh, and uh, I hope my pronunciation and reading was clear enough. And um, moving on now, as you'll see from the title 
of this podcast. This podcast is not about Edinburgh or my reflections on the new year or my commentary on Brexit. This podcast is about whether or not society is beyond redemption. And I ask this question because the current crisis and the coronavirus and the pandemic has thrown up a lot of um, structures of feeling, a lot of emotion, angst, both individual and social, about where we are and where we're going and what condition our society is in. And what pressures is our society coming under because of this crisis? And what pressures is the individual coming under because of this crisis? And so... I'm going to try to answer the question of whether or not our society can be redeemed. And I'm going to try to do that by looking at art. And I'm going to be taking a... I suppose it would be labelled a social sciences approach to to art and in particular the, the medium of art I'm going to be looking at is film and the reason for looking at film and not say painting or poetry or music um, is because film is a uniquely this is maybe a bold take but as a uniquely capitalist art medium. It evolved in the era of capital. It emerged, sorry, in the era of capital and it's evolved over time uh, to over a period of about 100 years or so to become the medium that we recognise as film today. And you could make an argument for television as well um, but TV now is just 95% game shows and cooking programs and then Strictly Come Dancing and I'm not convinced people really buy into telly as much as they do films anymore maybe I'm wrong it's an unscientific hot take for somebody who's just said they're going to be taking a social science approach to art but there we are I'm focusing on film because it's something that has emerged in capitalist society and has developed within capitalist society and it's taking different Take in different social ideas, emotions, psychologies, pack them into film, and given them back to us, and made them look as though they are unique points of view. But they're really just um, packaging up our, our our thoughts and feelings within society, and framing them in a clever filter with good actors, and um, they captivate us. And so, I'm going to be looking at film, and that's my reasoning. It's not very scientific. There's a little bit of science there, or a hypothesis anyway. But over the lockdown period, I've spent quite a lot of time reading books about arts, culture, and and the social sciences. Um, And the books I've read, this is just some of them, um, I've read a biography on Antonio Gramsci. Um... I've revisited several times The German Ideology by Marx and Engels. I have um, read... I'm just turning the music down because it's quite loud in my ears. Um, I've looked at 
uh, Marxism and the interpretation of culture. I've read a book um, called The Necessity of Art, which I highly recommend to you if you can get hold of it, by a guy called Ernst Fischer. The Necessity of Art. Very, very profound book. Highly recommended. Um, I read a couple of Pluto books. Um, Art After Money, Money After Art was one. Art and Post-Capitalism is another by a guy called Dave Beach, who um, is an excellent art theoretician and philosopher, I suppose. Maybe, I don't know if he would... He's an artist as well. Um, And I've dipped in and out of a couple of others as well. Uh, And I'm a big believer in the social sciences. I know there's a school of thought out there, in philosophy in particular, and some philistines in the natural sciences that the um all the social sciences are basically just a well-funded version of pseudoscience um i don't really buy into this um i don't buy into it at all in fact and it's just something that's really ideological and i think that it stems from the threat the social sciences frankly poses to the capitalist way of life um but, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to get into that. But nonetheless, anyway, um, I suppose the social sciences are... Um, are so... It's, it's argued that this, by these sort of people that the social sciences are ideological, they're dogmatic and not objective enough or at all to be considered sciences. Um, but I don't really agree with that. I think that's pish. And, I mean, one reason, um, or maybe two reasons, um, no science is really fail-safe. I mean, science is the best framework we have for interpreting the world and ordering it to make sure we are not overcome by the forces of nature, I suppose, which could destroy our civilization. Um, and us as a species. Um, But we shouldn't really... What am I trying to say? We shouldn't convince ourselves that once we have a science in place that that, it stays that way forevermore and is untouchable. Um, You know, one example is the change from Newtonian physics to Einsteinian physics, for example. Um... And science also has elements of social construction to it, um, which mean it's vulnerable to human fallibilities, its effectiveness is impacted by uh, our level of consciousness in society. I mean, we're seeing that now with people claiming that coronavirus is caused by 5G, um, which is just batshit. Um, And the level of consciousness in society is in turn impacted by the viability of the economic base in society. Uh, And this means if there's a crisis in the social and economic order, um, then all of mankind's frameworks, socially constructed frameworks and knowledge come under all sorts of different pressures. Um, So I guess what I'm just trying to say is that science is changeable, that change usually corresponds with a change in social forces, and revolutions and our technology and our productive forces and our technology productive forces and social demands these influence science and science influences technology productive forces and our social demands 
Um, and I guess I suppose maybe the second thing to say as a justification for taking a social sciences approach here is that just like um, physics can teach us about the workings of gravity, for example, well, the social sciences helps us account for instances in society and how they interlock with one another. Um... And I think this is where the, when I said before that people who discredit social sciences are afraid of it because it threatens capitalism, this is where that comes into play and why it's dismissed and undermined as pseudoscience. Because if you take a scientific look at society, you'll start to trace all of social society's ills back to the way society's structured and then you'll start to ask whose favour is society structured in and that delegitimizes the people who are wealthy and powerful in society and I think that's where it, it stems from but anyway that was a little bit of a digression but I'm defending my framework that's every good scientist should do um, so I guess then I'm taking a social sciences approach but I'm taking a Marxist approach should make that point from the outset um so this is a sort of Marxist look at how art is reflective of society, how art consolidates ideas in society, and also how art shows emergent ideas in society that have potential to be revolutionary, um, or even have ideas that point towards a sort of future future misery for us all. And you'll find that in quite a lot of the films that I'm going to discuss and I'll tell you what films those are in just a second um, but yeah to cut a potentially very long story short what I'm saying is that art is political as it's a product of society and social consciousness and both of these things society is a very political thing you know people who say you'll come across people say I don't really don't really do politics it's not for me I can't be arsed with it being in a society is a very political place to be and even if you were to say to somebody okay cool man you don't do politics then what are you doing living in a society go and live in the woods well they could go and live in the woods if they could find some woods that weren't owned by a very wealthy landowner um, and that's why society and social consciousness are very political things and that's why art is political and art is political in as much as what it says latently and explicitly, as much as what it doesn't say and what it leaves out. Um, and I'll try to obviously unpack this as we go along, but I'm just setting out some parameters, if you like, at the start of all this. So I was going to look at some paintings as well, but I really don't think I'm going to have time because... Um, I want to keep this short-ish um, We're already at 27 minutes I've given you a bit of burns So I want to start on one of my films And I'm going to try and do this in a sort of series Rather than a two-hour podcast Which is really tiresome Or potentially really tiresome And makes all all the work sort of irrelevant because 
nobody's going to listen to a two-hour podcast on the spin, but you might listen to a podcast that's 40 minutes long and then go away and come back to the next one and then, you know what I mean, pick and mix sort of thing. So, I'm going to try and break this up. Uh, this might be an hour long, then the next one will be 40 minutes, and then the last one might be an hour long. I don't really know. We'll just see where we end up. Um, and one thing to say as well is that, well, before I get started, while I'm using a social sciences framework that's influenced by Marxism, um, a lot of this might feel like an English lit course, and that's fine. So don't fret, don't think, hang on, he's telling me he's going to take a Marxist approach, but this just sounds like my English lit course, or my English class at school, and I hated English at school because it was pish. So don't fret, mon chéri, everything shall be fine. D'accord. So the films I'm going to be looking at are Blade Runner, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, no Country for Old Men, The Dark Knight, where mostly just The Dark Knight, so that's the one with the Joker, the one in the middle. I might talk a little bit about The Dark Knight Rises, but my main focus is on The Dark Knight. And then the last film I'm going to be looking at are Lord of the Rings. And... I'm going to be sort of exploring how these films, I'm going to start using the phrase cultural texts. Yes. Oh yes. It's that sort of podcast. And I'm going to sort of look at them and ask and sort of explore the different ways that they ask us whether or not our society can be redeemed. And what they off, what this, what they say about that. What they, um, some of these films say society can't be redeemed and some do. Um, but I think they draw the wrong conclusions. And these are obviously observations that are debatable. Um, so maybe it would be more plausible to think of these as provocations rather than gospel and um, nailed on hard facts. Um, but I think there's some truth in it and that's why I'm running with this mini-series. So Blade Runner is going to stand on its own. Then I'm going to do The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, No Country for Old Men, The Dark Knight as a sort of um, compare and contrast. And then I'm going to do Lord of the Rings and then a conclusion, a summing up from the prosecution. So let's just dive straight into Blade Runner. You up for that? I don't hear anybody saying otherwise, so let's just get fired in. So, by the way, the Blade Runner I'm looking at is the non-Ryan Gosling one. So it's not Blade Runner 2049, it's Blade Runner 2019. So, to start, Blade Runner depicts a society that is literally beyond redemption. It's a society where capitalism still exists, but everyone in society seems to have accepted that there will be wealth inequalities and power inequalities. It's a society where technological advancements have not liberated mankind, but they have instead... But instead, man um, 
is in a constant and increasing existential crisis where mankind is forced to watch their humanity uh, fade or they have to struggle to maintain their humanity at best. Um, much like our own contemporary society, technology and access to it in Blade Runner society is still determined by those who have and those who do not. Uh, and I think a very nice inclusion in Blade Runner and it was lapped up by Coca-Cola because they love to have their brand. They would have everybody's brand tattooed on... They would have their brand tattooed on the arse of every man on this planet. Every man, woman and child on this planet, if they could. Um, but it was very, very clever to have Coca-Cola still in society. Because that's the sort of society that Blade Runner in the 80s predicted would be the case in 2019. Genius. Still dominated by corporations who don't give a fuck about you or me. Um, so this is a film that was out in the 1980s. And it's... So it came out when the socialist world in Eastern Europe and Russia still existed. Um, but it's quite clear that the writers, um, Hampton, uh, Fancher, David Webb, uh, and the director Ridley Scott, obviously, uh, who could forget Ridley Scott, had no confidence um, in providing an alternative narrative to capitalism. Um or an alternative narrative for society within their film. And I think the reason for this is because the dominant ideology in society in the 1980s was that there was no alternative. And this is often called Tina. No alternative. There is no alternative um, to capitalism. That was Thatcher's great uh, slogan. There is no alternative. And... Um, I think Blade Runner buys into this ideology very strongly, but what it actually shows is how this lack of alternative will make mankind and humanity worse off, um, not better off as people like Thatcher claimed that it would, perhaps even believed that it would. Let's not get into that. Um, so this film seems to suggest that redemption is possible, though highly unlikely. Um, but it's possible through the hard work of mankind to overcome the alienation that's been allowed to develop and fester in society uh, and recover their lost and or fading humanity. And... Or maybe not and... However, um, Blade Runner suggests that the Tina mentality, you know, this idea that there is no alternative in relation to capitalism, um, has given way to there being no alternative to mankind losing its humanity and its qualities associated with that, such as empathy and compassion. And all the way through the film, there is a, a very, right until the end, compassion and empathy are seeping out of the film, and sorry, disappearing out of the film. They've, it, there's hardly any at the start, uh, and 
right before uh, Rutger Hoyer, uh, spoiler, saves Harrison Ford. Uh, right up to that point, there's no empathy or compassion in the film. Um, and the writers and Ridley Scott are at pains, I think, to show us how the consumerist society that was being developed in the 80s the idea that was no alternative to that they were at pains to show us how that society would lead us to lose our humanity lose our sense of social identity lose empathy for one another's state of mind and position and then just lose compassion and I think that it's arguable that Blade Runner is a very clever critique on the Tina mentality on the idea that there's no alternative to capitalism and um, they have made a very good um, artistic analysis of where this will lead us in the long run and I think it's noticeable today uh, in our own society and contemporary society how anti-social society is um, how there is a lack of compassion in society a lack of empathy with other people there is a big fight to try and change that with things like mental health and well-being but they're all aimed at the individual and it's society that that uh, I'm arguing in this little mini-series by looking at art that is struggling, society as a whole, that's struggling for compassion and empathy for humanity. And Blade Runner, I think, minus the flying cars and the shiny-looking buildings, Blade Runner has got a very good... Um, has made a very good analysis of where we'll be as a society if the there is no alternative mentality is allowed to continue to rule the roost. Um, so yeah, so I think that setting the, the setting of Blade Runner 30 years in the future it's easy to sort of buy into the aesthetics of that um, like the flying cars for example it's easy to look at that and say Oh, they got that wrong. You know, they told us society was going to be... Um, they told us that society was going to have flying... We would have flying cars. And here we are still running around on combustible engines. Haha, <laughs> they got it wrong. But actually, that is just a nice aesthetic to the film. What's, what's important about Blade Runner... Um, or what's important about the flying car is in this film is who's, who owns it, who's got access to a flying car. It's the wealthy, the powerful, and the state's institutions. Um, but what Blade Runner's trying to do is not predict really what technology we've got or going to have. It's predicting where mankind will be if capitalism was allowed to continue its reign unfettered as it currently has. And I think if Blade Runner has predicted anything, um, and it's predicted that the Tina, or the there is no alternative ideology, will lead mankind to abject misery. And I don't think Blade Runner is a million miles away in this prediction. Um, I think where we are today in 2021... Society seems to have accepted there'll be power inequalities, there will be wealth inequalities, there'll be disparity to access to the fruits of society, so i.e. technology, and that's just the way it is. 
we have accepted there is no alternative and we will just carry on allowing corporations to destroy the planet to suck all empathy and compassion out of society and then try to sell it back to us in the form of a really cheesy advert like John Lewis or McDonald's advert just before Christmas time there um, and I think Blade Runner have got that spot on there you go, provocation number one so um, yeah, what Blade Runner is essentially doing is modelling the Tina ideology of the 1980s um, allowing it to sort of develop to its logical conclusion and I think it's a logical conclusion that we're living with today where there is a lack of social cohesion a lack of social organisation a lack of leadership a mental health crisis there's loneliness isolation uh, there's a growth of evil in society and it's a society that's constantly at war with itself but is unable to recognise recognise it it's unable to reconcile with itself at the same time and all the while the rich and powerful are able to continue coining it in and what Blade Runner says is that <coughs> the only hope for mankind to rescue its humanity and to redeem society um, is to plot an alternative is to, yeah, to plot an alternative away from our current society and the best way that we can do this is by using empathy and compassion as our guiding principles so at this point in time at this point in the podcast, it seems it's art, or film, Blade Runner in particular, tells us that society is beyond redemption. Which is a bit of a grim... A bit of a grim uh, prognosis, isn't it? So, I think we'll leave this episode there. Um, at this point in time, it seems that society is beyond redemption. That um, the lack of social organisation and social cohesion and the fact that corporations and the wealthy and powerful are able to exploit this for their own gain um, has society in a constant state of stagnation at best and it's gone too far and it can't be saved the only way we can save it is by finding our compassion and humanity and empathy for one another and switching off from global corporations but Blade Runner doesn't seem to think that's possible because the totality of it all um has produced a totality of, shall we say, grimness and that is inescapable so I'm going to leave you go now and um, tune in to the next episode where I will cover The Good, The Bad and The Ugly No Country For Old Men and The Dark Knight and have a look at what these, what the overlaps are in these films what they tell us about society and where it's going, where it's been, and whether or not it can be redeemed.
Okay. Speak to you soon.